My name is Michael Daines. I'm a pediatric allergist immunologist uh, affiliated with the University of Arizona and Banner University Medical Center down in Tucson, and I am on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. My biggest pet peeve of the natural product industry is that it is completely untested and unregulated and makes unrealistic promises that people deserve better than. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Why, hello there. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic pharmacist and owner of Woodstock Vitamins. If you smell what my smock is cooking, visit woodstockvitamins.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram as well, Woodstock Vitamins, and you can find us on Twitter doing our sarcastic thing with the username at NoBSVitamins. If you want to talk to me about something and you want me to talk about something, I'd be happy to. Email me at podcast at woodstockvitamins.com. On the show today... Dr. Michael Daines. He's the Division Chief of Pediatric Allergy, Immunology, and Rheumatology at the University of Arizona. Dr. Daines is the co-director of the Children's Post-Infectious Autoimmune Encephalitis Center of Excellence at the University of Arizona, where he's engaged in clinical work, education, and teaching about autoimmune diseases and their impact on mood, movement, and behavior. Dr. Dane splits his time between research and clinic, with his research focusing on basic, translational, and clinical research in allergic, inflammatory, and autoimmune disease. His clinical work includes being the director of the Severe Asthma Program and a key member of the Aerodigestive Program at the University of Arizona. Dr. Daines and I will be talking about food allergies and intolerances, not just in children, but in adults. There's a bit of misconception in this space that I want to address with a true expert, not just somebody that's got a blog. You know what I'm saying? So our conversation today is quite enlightening and helps to clarify things that many in the natural product space overmystify. So here's Dr. Michael Daines. So I think it's funny that we have you on today because just last week I interviewed somebody that... Uh, studies social media, and she was one of the first people to have a show a causal relationship between social media and depression. And we started ragging on Reddit, and I was like, "Oh, well, Dr. Mike and I met on Reddit." That <laughs> so, is true. That is true. <laughs> so uh, it was great because you were out there dropping knowledge and dealing with some misinformation around uh, allergies and the gut. And I can't think of another topic that impacts my day more than this topic. Uh, we do a lot of nutritional consultations and we deal with a lot of misinformation. And one of them is around the intolerance, allergy, sensitivity stuff that's going on out there and that the popular media around nutrition. So nutrition's hard enough, but then you add on this layer that people have these sensitivities and intolerances and even allergies and it makes it super complicated. So I figured what we can do is we can start out first by helping people understand the difference between those things. Sure. So sure. I don't know if you have a, you know, if you want to just kind of go through intolerance, sensitivity, allergies, and just kind of go through that. Well, I'll start with allergies because that's what I care about the most. So mm-hmm. um, allergies are things that can kill you. And so that's why we take them seriously. Uh, an allergy is a uh, immune reaction to a food where you make a specific kind of allergic antibody called IgE. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you can measure this IgE in people, and people that have very high levels of it that are specific to different foods are very likely to have allergic reactions to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also measure this by doing skin tests where you uh, do the scratch test to take a look and see whether people react to uh, specific food proteins or not. Uh, in general, an allergy is only going to be towards the protein component of the food, not to the fats or the sugars or anything else that's involved in it. Uh, when you have an allergy, you can have a severe or life-threatening reaction to the food. Usually this reaction uh, relates to uh, to the allergic antibodies causing your mast cells to activate, which then release histamine. Histamine is what makes you itchy and drippy and makes you throw up and makes you feel miserable. Um, but it's an acute reaction. It's going to be something that happens within minutes to an hour after eating the food. It's going to happen every time you eat the food. And it's not going to happen with other foods. Okay. So that's the allergy. So allergy is yep. serious stuff. It can move to anaphylaxis, which yep. is a life-threatening reaction. So then what is, I, a lot of people don't suffer from allergies, right? Like most of us don't really have allergies to foods, I would imagine. So it, it depends on whether you ask people whether they're allergic to foods or whether you test them to see if they're actually allergic to foods. So if you just ask people, about 20 to 25% of people will self-report a food allergy. But if you do testing, only about 2% of people have a food allergy. So about 10 times as many people think they have a food allergy as actually have a food allergy. And that's because people lump a lot of other things like intolerances or preference into food allergy. Um, Part of the reason behind that is it's easier to say you're allergic to a food than it is to go through an in-depth explanation to try to make it so that they will not put the food on your plate. Um, But in the end, most of the intolerances that are out there People are miserable when they eat the food, but it doesn't progress to a life-threatening allergic reaction. And so as an allergist, I, I try not to say I don't care about something, but I don't care if a food makes you feel bad. I care if it's trying to kill you. If a mm. food makes you feel bad, you're going to figure that out and you're going to stop eating it probably on your own. Right. So is there like an official medical diagnosis or, or definition of food intolerances or food sensitivities? Yeah. So for most of them, there there aren't really good tests. So there, there are a few that there are. So for lactose intolerance, you can do hydrogen breath tests and you can measure enzyme levels in the in the gut to see if they're able to produce the enzymes to break down milk sugar. Um, for people that are uh, gluten intolerant and they have celiac disease, there are specific tests for that. But for many of the intolerances, it's just a, a, a self-described feeling when you eat the food that that you don't enjoy it and so you shouldn't eat it. One of the things I always like to tell people when they say that they have an allergy, but it's not a true allergy, is that allergies are immediate and severe yep. and sensitivities are delayed or they're hit and miss. Yep. You know, you're not going to notice that right away. Yep. And so, again, as an allergist, we do a really good job of identifying foods that people are actually allergic to. But um, if you don't come in with the classic food allergy symptoms, I, I ate a peanut and I broke out, broke out in hives. 15 minutes later. If you just say, I I don't feel good, especially after meals in general, but there's no specific foods associated with it. There's no test that's going to tell you what the food is that's triggering your reaction, because the only accurate validated testing that we have is testing that's designed to look for these allergic antibodies. I'm going to definitely dive into that because I'm seeing a lot of these fake tests pop up on social media all over the place. But let's kind of stay here. The foods that are most likely to cause an allergic reaction, is is this like a limitless list or is this something that 
it, we can get our hands around pretty easily. No, almost everyone's going to have an allergic reaction to just a few foods. So eggs, milk, soy, nuts, and fish probably cover 90% of the food allergies that are out there. And if you look at the people that are having uh, true, severe, life-threatening anaphylactic reactions, it's mostly uh, nuts, peanuts, fish, and shellfish. So it's a really limited set of, of foods that cause most of the allergic and even a smaller set that cause most of the severe allergic reactions that are out there. So do you feel like there has been a huge increase in the number of people reporting that they have allergies? Well, so there, there actually was an increase in the number of people that do have food allergies because as, as allergists and pediatricians and medicine in general, we screwed up a little bit. We thought that it would be better to have people avoid highly allergenic foods if they were at high risk for food allergies. So mm -hmm. for, for 10 or 20 years, we told parents that were at high risk for food allergies not to expose their kid to, kids to these food allergens early on in life. But it turns out that that was completely wrong. There's a window from about six months to 12 months of age where kids tend to develop tolerance to these foods if they eat them. And so it's very advantageous, actually, to expose kids early to these foods so that they can develop tolerance and not react to them in, in, in the future. So one of, the, one of the mistakes that medicine made was trying to keep those foods out of uh, people's diets for as long as we did. But, you know, medicine tries to get better and we figured out that we were causing more problems than we were solving with this. And so they've changed the recommendations, which has significantly decreased the number of kids that develop food allergies. Well, that's great. And that's a bit of information that I think uh, needs to be plastered all over the place, especially in the um, scientific media, the idea that you need to expose your kids to peanuts because now we have the opposite, people avoiding it because they don't want to have to deal with the allergies because it's become such a mainstream topic. Um, the, the, the food allergy picture seems to be able to change early on. Does, does it change over time? So if I'm allergic to something, can that allergy go away as I age? Um, for food allergies, it depends. So in the first few years of life, you're actually relatively likely to outgrow food allergies. So probably 80 to 90% of the kids that are allergic to milk or to eggs in the first year of life, by the time they head off to kindergarten, they will have outgrown those allergies on their own. There are some um, medications in clinical trials right now uh, to try to increase the chance of desensitizing to these. So there are both patch and oral ways of exposing kids to foods that are in uh, FDA phase three trials right now that look very promising for being able to desensitize kids and make them not allergic. Yeah. Um, now, if you're allergic to peanuts, uh, again, if you're allergic in the first year of life, by the time you get kindergarten, you've only got about a 25 to 30% chance to outgrow it. So nut allergy seems to be more persistent. And if you're over the age of five or 10, it, it's pretty unlikely you're going to outgrow most common food allergies. So do you deal with intolerances uh, on a more, um, just because of your exposure to these allergens and the misinformation, or is that something that's part of your practice? Yeah, well, we deal with patients. And so if a patient comes in saying a food makes them feel bad, we try to help them figure out what foods it could be. Um, the issue is, is a lot of the times it is not a true allergy. And so there isn't a test that will help us sort out what could be causing their problem. So we'll do trials of elimination to see if we can figure out which foods it might be that are targeting it. Um, you know, we'll take out uh, uh, milk protein, especially. I mean, on, only baby cows need to drink cow's milk. And so mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, take that out of the diet, you're eliminating lactose, you're eliminating a lot of the fairly difficult to digest and absorb cow's milk proteins. And so 
Uh, some people feel clinically better when they take that out, but there isn't a test that's going to tell you necessarily that that's the the food that's causing problems. So you're an anti-milk guy? Are you a non? No, 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 I guy? don't care. I, I like milk, but it doesn't cause any problems when I eat it. If if it made me feel <laughs> bad, I would do something. I would do something else. I'll, I'll for full disclosure, uh, I have tried all of the milk substitutes that are out there. Uh, some of them are pretty good. Some of them are at best okay. And there, as far as I can tell, is no substitute for uh, milk when you're making cheese. Uh, all of the cheese substitutes melt about as well as uh, saran wrap does. So I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> unimpressed by them. So, Well, my big thing about the milk and dairy alternatives is that they're they're trying too hard to be like milk. So yeah. they're trying to get the calcium levels up. So what they do is they fortify it with calcium carbonate and the inabsorbable yep. forms of calcium and these horrible vitamins to make it look like milk when they should just make it look like almond water, you know, yep. uh, or almond milk. So yeah, it's a big issue for me. The um, the next piece is around this idea of the allergies versus intolerance and how it affects common people. So the natural product industry, of course, mm -hmm. want to redefine allergies. They want to make it so everybody thinks that every intolerance is an actual allergy. So then they can reframe how you think about them. And then of course, redefine what they people can use to fix these allergies. Yep. So they of course have all of their diagnostics, which we've kind of touched on a little bit, but then they have their supplement regimens and diets and such to help address that. So let's start to kind of pick apart this idea of the GI allergy diagnostics. And I think that, um, you know, we had touched on, I'm, I'm not going to name any names just because I don't have enough uh, insurance yet to deal with this kind of a thing. But I, we, I think have been discussing and bonding over this social media ad campaign that looks very much like a, a personal testimonial about um, testing for allergies around foods. And it is this young woman who is uh, telling people that she went to the doctors, like Dr. Danes, and they said, you have no allergies. And that they did this wonderful at-home test for whatever, 50 bucks, 200 bucks or whatever. And it said, all of the things that the doctor told me was a lie and I'm allergic to everything. So um, this is a very, very common thing, these diagnostics uh, that are out there at home uh, for allergies. So let's talk about those. So it, it's not just patients that order fake tests too. Doctors order them sometimes as well. And, um, and I've gotten them back accidentally sometimes. We, you know, we're talking about IgE being the allergic antibody, and, um, and there are levels for food-specific IgE that you can look at. And if you're above a certain level, you're 95% likely to react to the food with anaphylaxis. If you're below a certain level, it's 95% likely the food is totally safe if you were to eat it. So there are also IgG food tests that you can get where it measures IgG instead of IgE. Now, IgE is your allergic antibody like we were talking about. IgG is your protective antibody. So this is what your body makes in response to infections and other exposures. So the, the, the problem is with proving that IgE caused food allergies, they've done a lot of work on that. They've, they've taken people with food allergies, they've measured their IgE, they've exposed them to the food to see if they have an allergic reaction or not. The IgG testing is totally unvalidated and has never been shown to associate with any known disease. So you can measure food-specific IgG in someone's blood, and you can get a very precise number that measures exactly how much there is. But whether there's a lot of that or not a lot of that doesn't tell you whether that food is going to make you get sick or be well when you eat it. So it's it's a great test for giving you a number, but the number doesn't tell you anything about what's going on with that patient. 
Right. The IgG test just tells you if you've been exposed to that food, not if you have an allergy. Or even potentially to related foods or other other things in the environment. So it's 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 a, a complicated mess that if you wanted to go through and validate and prove that it associates with the disease, you should go through and validate and prove that it associates with the disease. But mm-hmm. all of the attempts to do that have failed. There there is no clinical association with um, with any illness associated with food specific IgG. And for years now, too. I mean, this isn't new stuff. This company is taking this test that's been disproven for decades now and has been shunned by most uh, practitioners and national organizations and consensus bodies. And now they're just repackaging it and they're saying that, hey, this is a new test that we can do at home. Yep. And, And in general, you know, if if you're getting a blood test and you have to pay for it out of pocket, it's because the test hasn't been proven or validated, and that's why your insurance doesn't cover it. Right. And so for all of these food allergy tests, if you're being asked to pay for it out of pocket, whether it's these IgG tests or the cellular activation tests or it's a hair analysis or whatever, it, you're going to be asked to pay for it out of pocket. And that's because it's an unvalidated test that has not been proven to clinically associate with any medical condition whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the funny part is, is that the marketing spin is uh, so thick with these things. I was looking online at their statement around the uh, overall, uh, like shouting from the rooftops that these <laughs> these tests don't work. And they literally said, well, there's a divergence of views regarding IgG tests. Like that's what they said on their website. There's no divergence of views. Like they have this view that it works and everybody else that has any sane um, understanding of uh, of what's going on here uh, disagrees with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, people feel bad uh, out there in the world. And, and medicine in general does not do a great job of telling people why they feel bad and making them feel better. We're good at picking out what things are making you sick, but just feeling bad in general, there isn't a, a great test for. And so unfortunately that opens up the door for people to bring these unvalidated unproven tests diagnostics and treatments out and prey on these vulnerable people that don't feel well and uh, part of what we try to do in the clinic is to de-weaponize some of these tests that other people are going to put out and be as transparent as possible about what the limitations are for what medicine can do but that doesn't mean that non-medicine things are necessarily going to work any better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the I don't think you, anybody could say it better than what you just did, is that medicine has failed in taking the lead here on offering people solutions for just not feeling good, uh, you know, in that little gray area between what can be diagnosed and treated and, and not. And as a result, you have all of these vultures kind of coming down and creating their own little systems uh, to like just pillage money from people. Um, so if you have a food intolerance and you don't feel good and these tests aren't going to help, how would I know what to do to determine if I actually have an intolerance and to what? Well, I, I think the best way to figure out if there's an intolerance is to systematically take foods out of your diet one at a time and see if there is something that you can identify that causes the problem. Because again, it, it should be something that happens every time you eat the food in whatever form you're eating the food in. Now, your gut is a really complicated thing. You, you, you're, you as a person are more bacterial cells than you are human cells. Essentially, your human cells are just a vehicle to carry all of the bacteria in your body around. 
And a lot of those bacteria are in your gut. And depending on what you eat, you're feeding them different things. And these active bacteria in your gut can produce things that uh, impact uh, the way water moves back and forth across your gut, which can cause stretching and discomfort or constipation or diarrhea. Uh, they can release substances that can be irritating. Um, so th there's a lot of complexity to how foods are going to impact you and how you feel. But I think the best way to approach it is to do single trials and see if taking a food out actually makes a difference. And if it doesn't, no matter what the test results said, no matter what you're looking at, you should not eat that food. Provided there are enough other foods for you to eat and you're getting a broad diet and there are no nutritional problems or anything else, you know, there, there are 40,000 foods out there. I probably eat 15 of them in a week. <laughs> and so if, if you want to eat a different 15 than I eat, that's fine. I, I Again, I, I try not to say I don't care, but I don't care what other people eat as long as they're making choices based on how it makes them feel. One of the things when we talk about elimination diets is the placebo effect associated with foods. Yep. Uh, have you come across that? Absolutely. We see kids all the time that are on overly restrictive diets. Uh, and, and you know, there may have been a reason to take some of these foods out in the beginning, but trying to get them reintroduced is is challenging. Some of them are labeled as allergies, and there are medical legal issues with this label of a food allergy that you aren't necessarily just going to give them peanuts if they self-report that they're allergic to peanuts. Sometimes we have to do more diagnostic testing to prove that it's safe to eat the foods. Um, we have to do office-based challenges to make sure that it's safe for them to consume them. So um, there's a lot of work to kind of, again, bringing people down from a place where they're avoiding too many foods. We'll also involve dietitians and nutritionists uh, to try to make sure that even if they want to stay on a restrictive diet, that they're not overly restricting and causing nutritional problems. The thing that I've seen too is that even just the act of removing a food or moving in uh, a direction towards discovery of a problem, you can get people that feel better. So they'll take something away from their diet that they truly don't even have an intolerance to, but because they think that they are. Um, uh, doing something good for their health, it actually improves their outcomes and improves how they feel. Yep. So it actually, and they can reintroduce that food later, and literally no problems, no intolerance. Well, th that and there, there are a lot of um, kind of voodoo diets out there. These rotation diets and stuff, where people only eat a certain food every third day or something along those lines. <laughs> there, there's just absolutely no science behind any of this. It's it's a, a, a fabricated industry of trying to. Um, create an explanation for why people should eat something or shouldn't. And in the end, um, being allergic to food is like being pregnant. Either you are or you aren't. You're, you're not a little allergic to it. You're, you're not a little pregnant. And so when we diagnose somebody with a food allergy, it's complete elimination and an EpiPen and, and school avoidance and all those other things. In intolerances and elimination diets to determine if it's truly an intolerance and, and there's a discomfort there, what's the amount of time that somebody should be without a food before we can really say that they're cleansed of it and then can try to reintroduce it? Well, it depends on uh, on what kind of reactions you're having. So there are some medical conditions where you can have a true food intolerance like, uh, like eosinophilic esophagitis or like celiac disease 
where uh, we know that you need to eliminate the food for 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 days to weeks before it you, you get a, an impact. But the most common intolerances are things like lactose intolerance. It's it's mm-hmm. literally within a day of getting rid of it. You should know uh, whether you've gotten rid of the symptoms or not. Mm-hmm. And you know, as you were saying, everything's complex. So these people have multiple foods that are probably unhealthy and they they may have like a disrupted microbiome that's already spitting out horrible stuff anyway and then um uh, unhealthy diet and intolerances so it's like this multifactorial thing so it's like you don't even know where to start sometimes is there a normal strategy that you would say for people like which things should they focus on first if you're worried that you have a food intolerance what kinds of foods would you say eliminate these things first from your diet and um, and and target these things before you think of anything else. Well, you know, common things are common, and if you look at what most people are are self reporting intolerances to, it's either going to be cow's milk or or wheat are probably the two biggest ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of people that self identify as gluten intolerant. A small subset of those have true celiac disease, where if they eat wheat, they can die. Um, but most of them. They just feel badly when they eat it. And there are a lot of potential reasons for that. The, the wheat proteins can cause reactions. There, there are also these, uh, these glucans that are present in wheat, these complex non-absorbable sugars that feed the bacteria in your gut and can cause bacterial overgrowth and SIBO and other problems. So, um, so uh, if I had to pick the two foods to take out of my diet, if I wasn't feeling well, I'd probably do uh, milk and wheat. But uh, before I do that, I would probably talk to my doctor to make sure that there was nothing else going on medically that I needed to worry about. A very important point, because a lot of people that are trying to do this stuff on their own, they find that supplements and the self-care is the alpha and the omega. It's the end all. And we often tell people to loop their doctors in when they have uh, any uh, sort of abnormal feeling, because we we can be very successful at getting rid of symptoms, but that doesn't mean that we're um, taking care of underlying conditions that could be uh, very insidious and, and could cause problems in the long term. Yeah. And, you know, if you, the other thing is, is there are a lot of people out there that are taking uh, probiotic supplements in different ways. And that's a whole unregulated, untested area as well. Um, again, probably relatively harmless at, at worst. And for people that are on antibiotics, probably a really good idea. But as I said, we're more bacteria than we are people. And, and changing those bacteria that are in you could have both good and bad effects, depending on what you're doing. Do you recommend probiotics for the most part? I'm just going to say I don't care a lot today, I guess. So uh, so if, <laughs> if if you're on antibiotics, then yeah, I think it's a good idea to, to, to do something that has live bacteria in it, whether that's a pharmacologic probiotic or one of the uh, natural substances that's a fermented food, I think is 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 fine depending on how you prefer doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of baseline, if if I had chronic ab- abdominal issues that I was thinking about taking a probiotic, I would probably talk to my physician before I started doing it on a daily basis. Or a holistic pharmacist that really knows how products sure. are made. I mean, sure. either one of those two things could work. Yep. I mean, and and this is the point that I tell people about probiotics is that. Um, the natural products industry is the wild west and the, tr- the colors are truly shown with probiotics because we have living things that have to colonize your gut and survive the acidic environment of the stomach and, uh, and all of these complex things. So it's the, 
the mess of the natural products industry really comes out when it comes to probiotics. And we have to remember there are two separate things that we're talking about. The ingredient, so probiotics are beneficial. There's clinical data showing that probiotics can help in a number of different conditions if you use the right strains and have the right product. But the problem is the product. Most of the products that people buy are garbage, you know? Yep. And as a result, we have all of these different results, which then further complicates this whole gut picture. Well, and then the, the other side of it is, are the prebiotics too? Because uh, just dumping bacteria into your gut, you're, they're, they're not necessarily going to significantly alter the microbiome that's there because they're just going to get flushed through. But if you change the way you're feeding the gut bacteria, then you can create significant alterations in the different uh, strains of bacteria that are present in your gut. And uh, prebiotics, the undigested uh, fibers, undigestible fibers and stuff like that, uh, can dramatically alter your, uh, your gut bacteria as well. Yeah, that's what we call uh, prebiotics, the fourth pillar of good gut health. The first yep. being fluids, the second being dietary fibers, which are the source of prebiotics. And that's where we'd rather people get it from uh, probiotics and then uh, prebiotics again. So, I mean, that's really an important thing to remember is you got to feed those bacteria. Yep. <laughs> and if you feed the wrong bacteria, you might have a, more of a problem than, than you have. So the dietary fibers is, is an important part of, of the day. The, I want to go back to gluten. Sure. Is gluten the devil? Oh, I love gluten. It makes bread stretchy and tasty and delicious and everything else. I'm I'm definitely pro gluten, but um but there are people that just can't uh tolerate it uh for for a lot of reasons. One of the one of the doctors I work with is sure that he's gluten intolerant and and I'll be honest, I don't think he is. I think it's the sugars. <laughs> he's just are... a drama queen. Yeah. No, no, no. He he <laughs> he he legitimately doesn't feel well when he eats things that have wheat in it, but mm -hmm. he doesn't have celiac disease. And um, he does not have a true allergy to wheat. So my guess is it's one of the complex sugars that are present in the wheat that's changing his his gut's response, basically. Mm -hmm. um, I keep threatening to, uh, uh, I, to use um, a, a prebiotic uh, that has the same glucans in it as wheat to test him in a double-blind, uh, placebo-controlled <laughs> way, but he won't take the, take no the chance that consent. he's going to react. So, so yeah. For coworkers, you don't need informed consent as much. Okay. So. Yeah, I was going to say, do you guys just go around like stabbing each other and doing allergen tests on each other just to see like who's allergic to what? Uh, not that much, but back in the back in the old days, they used to do this test called the Prausnitz Kuntzner test, where if you want to know if somebody was allergic to a food, you would take um, take serum from the person that you thought was allergic, yeah. and you would inject it intradermally into a normal person, and then wow. have and then twenty four hours later, you would have them eat the food, and the adoptive transfer of the allergic antibodies would make you have a hive where the serum had been injected if they were allergic to that food. And so back before we had laboratory tests or other ways to look for food allergies, this was the safest way to do it. But obviously, we don't go around injecting serum from random strangers into other people at this in this era. So. Well, I mean, that'll be probably the next take-home test that everybody can do is like, take your mom's blood and inject it into your eyes and then see if you're allergic. Well, you know, with the platelet-rich plasma, it's almost the same thing. It's just your own uh, plasma getting injected, but it's a, it's an interesting industry too. So we're you're talking about prebiotics. So, what, you know, what kind of prebiotics do you do you enjoy uh, rate making recommendations around? Well, I don't that much. Again, in our patients that are on chronic antibiotics for various reasons, we usually have them on a on a on a prebiotic and a probiotic. We will use um, 
Oh God, you're making me try to remember uh, the different ones we're using. The well, what about instead of the brands? Like, what kinds of ingredients in there? Because I've done lots of papers on prebiotic products and how these $80 products are just basically banana powder. Uh, and because they contain some of those FOS uh, type molecules that you're talking about. So, I mean, are there any specific foods that are rich in prebiotics that you wish people would get more in their diet? So for supplements, we'll use the, uh, the uh, uh, galactose oligosaccharides and yes. the, um, and the uh, what's the other one, the xylose oligosaccharides, if I'm remembering correctly. You are um, my best friend. This is, this is why we're bros, because the GOS molecules, in my opinion, I, I cling to the few bits of data out there that show not only do GOS feed the good bacteria, but they also kind of snuff out some of the pathogenic bacteria in the gut. And then probably the easiest one to get are the fructose oligosaccharides, the FOS too. So, but um, you know, all of them. Uh, again, there's no good science behind any of these things. So, right. so I can't tell you. Um, you know, it, one of our labs uh, I work with, um, we are looking at microbiome down to a species level in different types of of diseases, but uh, but no one has looked at that with that kind of rigor at how these different substances are impacting what's actually going on down there. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I mean, I think the biggest thing that we can say to people is there are steps that you can take before you get into the product level uh, around gut health. And then there are some general recommendations and it's really about being objective and honest in how you're using your supplements. So, you know, if you feel better on them and they are safe and not, uh, ripping you off, then go right for it. And yep. uh, I think that that's a pretty safe recommendation, even if you're trying to be as conservative and responsible with the advice as you possibly can. And and they're all available in, nutritionally too. You can get all of these from from food sources, basically. It's mm -hmm. just, and, and you would probably be eating a significantly better diet if you were getting them from food sources than if you're not. But a lot of us are lazy myself included and it's easier to eat food out of a box or something than it is to actually prepare stuff so yeah they've trained us really well to look for pills to solve all of our problems and uh, the convenience factor is, is really high in today's modern lifestyle yep um, so let's talk about one bit of information that may apply more to the listeners because they are uh, may or may not most likely not dealing directly with food allergies. And there is a generation of Americans, I guess, that aren't hip to the idea that these allergies are real. And they can that can go almost to a level of skepticism where you have food allergy skeptics that are like, well, there's no such thing as allergies. Or when I was a kid, there wasn't allergies. And as a result, they can be less sensitive to this idea and potentially expose kids to allergens. Well, you know, like I said, 20 to 25 percent of people say that they're allergic to foods and only about two percent actually are and so that does create some skepticism out there in the general public but in the end um if somebody says they're allergic to a food you should believe them because if you don't you could kill them and there's really no reason to expose them to a food allergen it's not like it's going to toughen them up or something if they're allergic to peanuts and you try giving it to them in a in a sneaky way just to see what's going to happen so in in general just listen to people and if they say they're allergic to a food just don't give it to them whether whether you believe them or not i i i don't care just listen mhm mm is there anything that you wish that you could say to every patient, but you really can't because you're, you're their doctor, 
Um, and you just, you have to be more responsible. Is there something that you wish that you could say to each patient? <laughs> I think patients are a pretty rational group of people overall. You know, they, they come in with a, a, a problem and they come in with an agenda and you try to fix their problem and you try to fix their agenda. And, and I don't mean agenda in a negative way. They come in because they want something. They, they, they want to find out what they're allergic to and they want us to communicate it to the, to the parents, to the stepdad, to the schools, to, to whatever people it is, that this is something that they have to take seriously. And they want us to give them the tools so that they know how to avoid it. And they know how to treat a reaction if one comes up. And, and that's our job to do that well. And how about to the people that are distrusting the medical industry and they're looking more towards the scientific uh, media, I guess, or the unscientific media, and they're, they're using Google as their main source of information and, and the blogs that are out there. What is something that you wish you could tell them uh, to maybe uh, warm them up to the idea that those things aren't, aren't what they say they are? I don't know. I mean, I love informed parents. I think it's it's great to have people that are invested in trying to figure out how to take care of their kids and are looking for every information source that they can to to try to um, to, to to get that. Um, I I hope they view me as an an ally in that fight. Uh, I try to be transparent about what our limitations are, what the things are that we can figure out, what the things are that we can't. So I'm really good at telling you what you're allergic to. I'm not really good at telling you what foods are going to make you feel good or feel bad, but no one else is any better. And so, um, so uh, work with me. We'll try to figure it out and um, we'll move on from there. Great. Dr. Danes, I think that the world needs more of you. Uh, doctors that are hip to what's going on. Um, have a great bedside manner, can explain things in a very simple way, and are willing to kind of lead this fight around a, a holistic approach to everything while addressing the real medical issues that are out there. So uh, I want to thank you for your time. I appreciate you doing this. I know uh, we had a little time zone issue here, but I, I thank you for coming on and, and helping me dispel some myths and misinformation around dietary allergens. Of course, happy to be on. I want to thank Dr. Danes for taking the time to do this. And as I said during the interview, we met on social media. So I'm glad the fact that I creeped him on Reddit and hounded him for an interview didn't really turn him off. I think it was an excellent discussion around topics that are too often overcomplicated. I love Dr. Danes' approach on being objective and keeping the conversation simple. He's quick to just call out what's real and what's not, and that's what we need in this world, especially in the natural product space. It's refreshing and definitely needed around food intolerance and allergies. I toss my hat in the ring for people that may be overwhelmed at all the possibilities to help address gastric irritation and discomfort from foods. You can visit our consult page, woodstockvitamins.com consult, and we can help you reach a better place with your gut without all the dramatics and the crazy misinformation. No cost, of course, and no pressure to buy. If you want to learn more about Dr. Danes's practice, you can give a call to 520-694-5437, which is the Diamond Children's Multispecialty Services Clinic in Tucson, Arizona. You can also visit doctors.bannerhealth.com and just type in Danes and you'll find his practice and his contact information. So that's it for now. Until we speak again, keep listening, keep learning, and be well.